Well, it is great to be back with you after taking a Sunday off. First Sunday I missed since we planted the church, and I did miss really being here with you guys, but I got to spend some time with my family. In fact, we got to go to Disneyland. Anybody here like going to Disneyland? Like, with the, like the stereotypical Orange County people that we are? That, that's me. We don't care if it costs an arm for a turkey leg. We're in, you know what I mean? We like going to Disneyland. It's something that gets us excited. In fact, I believe we have a picture. Here we are at the happiest place on earth, right there. That's us. Yeah, we tried to evangelize that lady, but she didn't say, she didn't really say anything. Um, So we had a great time. But something happened that I need to talk to you about is that we were going to Disneyland. We're driving there. We're in the car. We're together as a family of five of us. And and uh, we get to the Disneyland parking lot, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, if you ever go to Disneyland, but they don't want us to park in the biggest parking structure in the world that they built. They want to direct us to some other parking structure somewhere else. That's going to take us a long time to get to, and then we're going to have to take this special shuttle, and I'm sitting there looking at this guy waving me on, and I'm thinking, so now I'm going to have to go stand in a line to get on the shuttle, or I'm going to stand in line to buy tickets, or I'm going to stand in line to get into the gate. And I started to get not so happy at, at Disneyland. And actually what I was getting was a little quick, uh, a, a little uptight. We call it impatient. Anybody else ever been there before? That's exactly how I was feeling. And I'm thinking about all of these lines and why can't we just get straight to the fun when the truth is the people that I'm here to enjoy, the people that I love are sitting with me in this car and will be with me in all of these lines. But because of my impatience, see, I'm missing the point of the present. I want to suggest to you that impatience is maybe a problem that we, many of us have and we don't really know how to deal with it. A lot of us have heard cheesy Christian cliches about patience, like, have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry. Anybody heard this one before? When you get impatient, you always start to worry. So remember that God is patient too. Isn't that so demeaning to God right there? Oh, hey, remember, God's patient just like you are. No, my friends. God is patient on a whole level that we cannot relate to barely at all. And we should start learning what it means to be patient from him and aspire to do the same. Grab your Bible and open it up to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to focus in on verse 9, and I want to preach a sermon that I think is very important for us as we get ready for all that's coming, the bunny run, Easter. We're going to be moving into talking about the end times as we go through 1 Thessalonians. And I think 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 will really set us up for what God has for us in the next few weeks. And I actually want to read the whole context here. So let's start in verse 8. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and we'll read all the way down to verse 15. So please follow along as I read God's word. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Two times in this passage, it mentions the patience of God. And the Greek word that it uses there, and I want to zero in on what it says in verse 9, if you can look at it. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count slowness, God is patient toward you. Macrothumia is the word there. Right away we understand macro, that's re- referring to quantity. It's big, it's long, it's, it's large. Thumia is from thumos, which means wrath. That's what it means. It means he is long-suffering. He has a very long fuse before the bomb goes off. God can endure a lot of us before the end comes. That's the idea here when it says that God is patient toward you. He has been patient. Now the context here is we're talking about this day of the Lord. A time that's coming in the future that's going to be an awesome time for some people to meet their God whom they love, but a terrible time for other people to be judged by a God they have rejected. And we're going to be studying this in great detail as we get back to 1 Thessalonians after after Easter. And there's scoffers saying, well, where is he? He promised that he was going to come back. And I don't see him, so I don't think it's really going to happen. They're, They're mocking the idea of the return of Jesus Christ. And you can see that's only intensified. I mean, this is now almost 2,000 years later since Second Peter was written. People are highly skeptical and don't believe that Jesus is going to come riding on the clouds and every eye is going to see him. A lot of people think that might be the most ridiculous part of Christianity to them. They might even accept this historical stuff about Jesus, but the future stuff that he's coming back, that he's going to reign, that he's going to establish a kingdom, people aren't really living that that's going to happen. I don't see it. Why hasn't God done it yet? If he's going to do it, why hasn't he done it at this point? And he's saying, here's what you don't understand about God. You don't understand his patience. That's what you don't get. God will suffer a long time. God is slow to anger, and he is willing to endure with sinners. Why? Because he wants them to be saved. He wants them to turn around before the end comes. Now, this idea of patience goes all the way back to God revealing himself to Moses. Turn with me to Exodus 34. And I want you to see with me in the Old Testament, there's many passages we could turn to. Let's just go to a couple. That in the Old Testament, the way that it describes patience, it may not use the word patience, but the idea is slow to anger. You're going to find that phrase a lot. 
If you, if you look for it, if you have a little Bible app on your phone and you type in slow to anger, there's going to be a slew of verses that will come up in the Old Testament. And here's where it starts when God shows his glory to Moses, when God gets to describe himself. There's a lot of people saying a lot of different things about God. Let's let God speak for himself this morning. Here's how God wants to introduce himself to Moses. This is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Here's the phrase we're looking for. Slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or as it said, in grace and truth keeping steadfast love for thousands. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In fact, he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Important for those four men who were just up here on the stage to think about this. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How does God want to describe himself to Moses, to us, through the scriptures? I love to forgive people. I want to be merciful. I want to be gracious. I give people time to turn from their sin. But do not make a mistake. At some point, the bomb will go off and the guilty will not get away with it. This is how God introduces himself. And this passage is then taken and quoted throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament that God is a God. And one thing he wants us to know about him is he is slow to anger. That's something that he is proud about himself. That's an attribute that God wants you to know about himself. That he'll be patient with your sin so that you can turn to him for salvation and leave that sin behind. One of the great examples of God actually doing this is the book of Jonah. So turn there with me. It's in the middle of the, the pages of your Bible that might still be stuck together here. In the middle of the, the minor prophets, my friends. The most familiar minor prophet because it has great animal stories in, in it. Um, Jonah. And Jonah is sent to go to Nineveh to a people that God is going to judge. And his message that he gives to the people is in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. That's the sermon that he comes and preaches. 40 days and you guys will be destroyed. Now when God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach this message, what does Jonah do? Does anybody know? Anybody read this book before? What does he do? He books it in the opposite direction. He's told to go inland, he gets on a boat and goes on water. And God has to deal with this disobedient prophet and turn him back around in a supernatural way. And eventually he gets Jonah to Nineveh and Jonah goes through the streets of the city and he says this message, hey, you guys are going to be destroyed. And look what happens in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The king is, is all of a sudden demonstrating repentance. That was a symbol of it, sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and he published it throughout the entire city of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Universal fast for Nineveh. Let them not feed or drink water. 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God gave him 40 days. What does this guy say? Let's use it. Let's make the most of the opportunity right now. Let's turn from our sin. Maybe God will be merciful and will forgive. Guess what God does? He shows mercy. He forgives. He doesn't judge the the city of Nineveh. And when God saw what they did, verse 10, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He had given them time. They turned from their sin. God turned from his judgment. And he said what he would do to them, he did not do it, but... Chapter 4, look at this guy. Look at this prophet. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah didn't like that Nineveh got saved. He was racist against them is one reason. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Here's the real reason Jonah is going to tell us why he went the opposite way on the boat. This is what I said when I was in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, here's what I know about you, God, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is Jonah saying? He's saying the reason I didn't go to Nineveh isn't because I didn't want to bring a message of judgment to those people. No, the reason I didn't go to Nineveh is I knew you wouldn't judge those people. I knew you would give them a chance. I knew you would be patient with them and they would turn from their sin. Jonah didn't want these people to be saved. Can you think of something more cruel than that? Can you think of something more evil than to not want someone else to experience salvation from God for their sin and to enjoy eternal life? And if you know the rest of the story, Jonah becomes the first environmentalist. Do you know know that about this story? Because a plant grows up, he sits outside of the city, still hoping that God's going to judge the city, but God's not going to because he's been patient and he's forgiven. And Jonah is so like ready to see them get judged that he sits there watching and a plant grows up over him and gives him shade and then God kills his plant. And then Jonah is sad that his plant has died. The first of many people who get more worked up about plants and the world than the souls of other human beings. And God says, what do you want me to do, Jonah? Don't you want me to have pity? Don't you know there's 120,000 people in that city who aren't even smart enough to determine their right hand from their left hand? What about all the animals that live in this city? Don't you want me to have compassion, God says? So I don't like singing, remember that God is patient too, because God is patient and compassionate in a way that I have a hard time relating to as a sinner, see? I mean, God's willing to put up with a lot more than I'm willing to put up with. He's willing to look at an entire city of people that rejects him, and he wants to save every single one of them. That's how God is patient. His patience goes way beyond you and me. It would be like somebody here who is in love and wants to get married. I think we've got a few people who are in love here. We've got some people who are out in the open about being in love. We have other people who are very secretly in love right now. The other person doesn't even know it, but they're very passionately, (laughs) passionately in love. 
And see, we would think, well, when you, when you want to get married, you have to be patient because, you know, you got to get the families together and we got to plan this wedding and it takes some time. So when we basically, when we get engaged, we're ready to say, boom, let, let's do it. We're, we're, we're in. She said yes. But, you know, it takes, you know, some months. You know, sometimes people are getting engaged for over a year. I don't know what that's about. Let's, let's get down to, to the wedding here. But, the, I mean, it's going to take some time. And so we think, well, I'll just wait a little bit because, you know, that, and that'll be patient if I just wait for this wedding that's coming in the future. That's not, that's not a good analogy of patience, okay? Patience is like they get engaged. And when people get engaged today, it's like the Channel 4 News at 11 shows up and, like, interviews them. There's, like, paparazzi. There's a party. Have you been to one of these engagement parties? People are going big these days, right? Let's say there's an engagement party, and, and the, the couple comes in, and the place just goes crazy. We got confetti. We got balloons. And the, the guys, mom and dad are there, and you can tell they're totally into it. And the girls' parents are there, and they're just, like, crying and weeping. They've been praying for this day their entire life, right? And there's a whole group of people that are just rejoicing with the love of this couple. And then over here in the corner are like the aunt and uncle that, you know, you felt like you had to invite, but they're not really a part of the family, but you knew they would be offended if they didn't come, you know. So you invited them, and they're like in the corner like this at this party. And you, and you come to them, and you're like, hey, aren't you excited for this couple? Aren't you rejoicing that they're going to get married? And, and the uncle says, I don't think they should get married. I don't think it's a good match. And the wife chimes in, yeah, I never liked that girl. She's got bad issues, you know, and she starts saying stuff. And the, and the guy who just got engaged, and he brings now his fiance over, and he hears what his uncle and his aunt are saying, and he says, you know what, guys? Okay, we'll call off the wedding, and we'll wait. We won't even pick a day until you think it's a good idea for us to get married. That's the patience of God, my friends. He's willing to delay the entire party for his enemies, for people who hate him right now, to become a part of his family. That's the patience of the Lord. He's not being patient for us, for his people. No, we're ready to go right now. He wants us to be there right now. He's being patient for people in this room right now who are rejecting him. That's why he's waiting. For people right now who would just cuss out the idea of coming to church, God is delaying judgment so that they can be saved, so that the aunt and uncle who want nothing to do with it will become a real part of the family. That's the patience of God. And that's what he did with you, see? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's get back to the New Testament, to macrothumia here. And look what, look what Paul says. Man, if there's a good example of somebody who experienced the patience of God, it would be this guy named Paul, the, the persecutor of the church, formerly known as Saul. When, when they killed Stephen, the first martyr of the church of Jesus Christ, who was the man who was in charge of killing the first Christian person besides Jesus Christ? This guy, Saul. And he raised up such a great persecution in Jerusalem that literally God's people were fleeing for their lives, for their livelihood, out of Jerusalem into the surrounding area. I mean, and then he was on his way to another city where he was going to raise more ruckus and arrest more people and persecute more Christians. And what does God do? Does God strike him dead on the road to Damascus? No, God saves him. God turns him completely around. 
And what does he say here in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Look with me at verse 15. Here's the testimony of Paul. See if you can relate to this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what kind of people? Sinners, people like us, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy, but God forgave me. And here's why, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Man, did you do some sin before you became a Christian? Did you do some things that were offensive to God? Did you make the same wrong choice over and over and over again? Can you believe right now that God put up with you through all of that? He endured it. He loved you through it so that at the end of all your sin against him, he would offer you 100% forgiveness for all of it. That's a patience right there. Let's get that down for point number one. I want to praise God for putting up with my sin, and I want to encourage you to do that too. Praise God that he put up with your sin. I don't know how old you were when you turned from your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. But up until that day, God, he had a long suffering. He had a long fuse with you. And he didn't even let the bomb go off with you. He brought you to himself as Saul turned Paul is the example of the perfect patience and it's not even how many years of your life did God be patient with you. It's how many years has God been patient with humanity. I mean, in my mind, the highlight of the evil that we have seen, I mean, the greatest representation of evil, at least, I think that, that we're familiar with, is, is this guy named Hitler. You say Hitler's name and everybody just thinks pure evil, right? I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, you got a guy, he, he turns all his stooges into Nazis, and they go on this quest of world domination, and all of Europe is just, just lost in a bloodbath. Then Japan decides they want to start something over here with us, and now we've got two fronts in a massive world war, and how many thousands of people are being killed, and in the middle of it all, what's secretly going wrong, the most heinous part of it all, is that this guy Hitler is on a crusade to eliminate the Jewish people from planet Earth, God's chosen people, and he wants to kill every single one of them. I mean, this is just pure evil. And I would think that would be the moment, if I was God, where I would say, enough is enough, see. And I would show Hitler, and I would show the Nazis what was up, and I would let everybody know what I think about the sin of mankind once and for all. And God endures all of it, see. And he's still enduring sin to this day. He's enduring the sexual revolution that we went through here in America. He's now enduring the homosexual revolution that we're going through here in America. And why? Because he wants more people to repent. Just think, since World War II, how many more people have been born and had the opportunity to repent of their sin and be saved by God? His patience is bigger than what we're thinking about. And we need to praise him. We need to give him all of the glory. And if it doesn't matter, if it doesn't move in your heart, if it doesn't stir up your emotions, the patience that God has had towards you, my friend, the sin that he has endured and he suffered with, also he could save you at the end of it. 
And many, I hope many hearts will go home today ready to worship Jesus Christ for the perfect patience that he showed in saving you. But go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because it says God is patient toward you, but then it's going to open up to an even greater principle. Hopefully we can celebrate the patience of God. And, and I just want to encourage you that, that our main goal as Christian people is to know God, okay? And I would even want to ask you a question. What are you doing to grow in the knowledge of God? Christianity to us is not a religion. It is a relationship. And so every one of us is engaged in the study of theology. Every one of us is supposed to be growing in our knowledge of God and learning more about Him. And sometimes God is so immense, so overwhelming, so far beyond our comprehension that we have to break Him down one attribute at a time. And so I would just encourage you to consider God's patience right now. But if you could write down John chapter 17, verse 3, it says this is eternal life. Eternal life is not living forever in heaven. It says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you have eternal life, will you live forever in heaven? Yes, but that won't be the focus, is the fact that it goes on forever. The focus will be, look at the awesomeness of God. That's what it'll be about. And as Christian people, that should be our focus now, is I want to grow in my understanding as much as I can comprehend. I want to know who God is, and I want to worship Him, and I want to praise Him. I want to make sure that I have the right view of God. The worst thing I could do is think something wrong about God. I want to know Him. And so maybe you can see that, that little handout there, just a little plug. We're, we're, we're having a Sunday school class that's going to go through the attributes of God. On April 12th, we're going to two different services here at the church, and uh, we have a new room that we're making where we're going to have Sunday school during the 9 o'clock service, and so maybe some of you, God will put it on your heart if you can't serve in kids' ministry or something like that, maybe the thing God will want you to do is come to two services and do this series on the attributes of God and really grow in knowing the God that has been so patient to forgive you for your sins and not to judge you when you don't come to him. And so I hope that we can grow in our understanding of, of who God is. I just think of the guy, have you ever heard of a guy who will say, well, if there is a God, why doesn't he strike me down right now? Anybody ever heard of a, of a scenario like that? If there is a God, why doesn't he strike me down right now? We've maybe heard the story of the college professor who will say that in his class and, and, and talk real tough. Do you realize how small of a view of God that guy has? He doesn't even think God exists. God is so much better than someone who strikes you down right when you sin. I mean, the truth is, God already knew. Before that guy says, God, why don't you strike me down? God already knew he was thinking that. And before he even thought that, God knew that his whole life was going in a direction of rejecting God. And that God knew that he was going to, from the day he was born, God knew. Even before then, God knew the direction that he would choose to reject him. And God allowed him to be born. And God allowed him to live his entire life in denial of God. And God allows him to say that even in his sin because of the patience of God. And when you consider that, how could you not worship a God that good? That when his enemies call him out, he still suffers long with their sin. And here's why. If you're back in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, here's what it says. Here's what God, he doesn't want any to perish, okay? I mean, here's, here's God's will. 
Here's God's heart. This is what God delights in. This is what brings God pleasure. Not when people perish, but when they reach repentance. You know, one thing that we have kind of forgotten that we might need to underscore a little bit here is that people are perishing. I mean, the word here, apolumi, in the Greek language, apo is in, it's like, it means an intense version of whatever the word is, and lumi means destroy. That's the word here. Okay? People are headed right now for destruction. That's the idea. And what does God want? God doesn't want to destroy people. That's the point we're trying to make here this morning. God doesn't want to do that. He will do that. He's going to do that. But he doesn't prefer to do that. God gets no pleasure in the death of a wicked person, of a sinner who dies without being saved. God does not delight in that. That's Ezekiel 33, 11. There is no pleasure for God in the death of the wicked. What would God prefer? What is God being patient for? That people would be saved. He wants to invite everybody to the wedding, and he's even willing to wait on the wedding until they come and are ready to be, to be attenders of the wedding. I mean, we, look at Revelation 19 with me real quick. Just turn there, and I want you to see that this wedding analogy, that's the analogy that God uses to describe what it's going to be like for him and his people at the end. We're going to be talking about the end, and the end is going to end in one of two ways. The end is either going to end in a wedding feast or a battle. You're either going to celebrate with Jesus or you're going to be fighting against Jesus. That's how it puts it here in Revelation 19. And you can see here the heading above Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. I mean, this overwhelming sound of people. Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb, the coming together of Jesus and His people has come and His bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is what God's building towards. I mean, God has called a wedding between His Son and the church, and we're just, right now people are saying, I don't want to go to that wedding, and we are waiting for them to change their mind, to turn around, to join us in this celebration of salvation. Turn to Matthew chapter 22, and you'll see that Jesus speaks of this. He tells a parable of us spreading this goodwill of God to save mankind, like inviting people to a wedding. That's a way to think about this whole idea of God wanting to save many people. And so Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, who, to God who wants to celebrate his son, Jesus Christ. And he sent his servants, that would be us, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. So you invite people to a wedding feast, they RSVP no, but in the patience of God, what does he do? He sends them another invitation. First one didn't work, let's try it again. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. Hey, I've, let me just tell you, this is going to be a quality wedding. I have prepared my dinner, my oxen. My fat calves have been slaughtered. 
we've got a great DJ. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I mean, he's, he's selling it here. No, this is going to be good. Trust me, at the end, you don't want to be in a battle. You want to be in a wedding. But they paid no attention. And they went off. One to his farm and another to his business. And some, the rest, they seized his servants. They treated them shamefully. All these people are doing is inviting them to a wedding, but they treated them shamefully and they killed them. And the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Who are we talking about right there? Who is Jesus prophesying about right there as he gives this parable? Who are the people that are killing the prophets that have come in the past and then they're going to ultimately reject the Son of God and then what's going to happen to Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when the Romans are going to come and wipe the city entirely out? He's talking about the Jewish people who at that time rejected Jesus Christ. They got invited. They got invited again and again, and they rejected it. So what's God's new plan? Verse 8, then he said to his servants, well, the wedding feast is still ready, but those invited were not worthy, so go therefore. Now it's worldwide evangelism. Let's tell everybody, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants, they went out into the roads, and they gathered everybody they could find, both bad and good. I love that part. And that will take you. You look like you could come to the wedding. Yeah, you don't look good, but we'll take you too. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I mean, there's a party. There's a celebration of salvation that is yet to come. And we're just supposed to go out there and invite people to the wedding feast of Jesus Christ. Why not today? Why didn't God judge the world when we woke up this morning? Was it because there wasn't sin to judge? Was it because there's not horrible atrocities to make right? The reason God didn't judge the world today is so more people could decide they want to come to the wedding. And if you don't live for people to get saved, you completely miss the point of today. That's the point. In, in your impatience to get on with whatever you want to get on with in your life, you might be missing the point of life, period. That God is delaying it, the judgment that is inevitably coming, so that more people right now, this morning, here in this place, and all over the world, could turn from their sin and find that beautiful salvation in Jesus Christ. Point number two, don't miss the point of today. Don't forget the, the main purpose of life. Every morning that, that you're blessed to wake up and you get to enjoy this beautiful area in which we live, just realize this is not for us to just enjoy for ourselves. This is not for us to just go through our, our lives as we think of them. No, this is for us to be about the purpose of God's patience, which has endured with sinners for so long now, so that more people today could be saved. And when that last person decides, I'm in for the wedding, man, the feast is going to happen and we're going to go and celebrate with God. And it could happen so Soon, my friends. And so that's why we're talking about this today, because we have an opportunity in front of us. And to be honest, I don't know how many more opportunities we're going to have. And so we have this thing that we're doing next Saturday, and it's just a fun thing we're doing, and it's called the Bunny Run. You guys have heard about this, maybe, right? We're having a 5K. Who's actually gone running to prepare for this event, you can. this is one time you can show off in church. Well, get your hand way up. This is legit. There you go. I see that. Yeah, I'm not raising my hand. I'm with the most of the rest of you guys. You know, I, I was just eating ice cream last night. I wasn't going running. So uh, we have a fun event. It's a 5K. 
You can invite somebody to run. It's more than that. There's going to be families. There's going to be Easter egg hunts for the kids. There's going to be bounce houses, face painting. There's going to be free food. It's a time to invite neighbors, co-workers, people, and bring them to a very non-threatening environment so we can show them basic love and kindness and grace and mercy of God. Why? Because we want their soul to be saved. That's why we're doing it. We want to get to know people. So we're going out to some neutral ground to try to get to know some people, see? And then what do we have coming after that? What's coming up two weeks from right now? I mean, we got, we got, we got this the one Sunday of the year many people will consider going to church. And all they need is a little encouragement. All they need is an, a personal invite. We think we're going to have so many people. I mean, look around. Praise the Lord. We got some people here this morning. We think we're going to have more on Easter. So we're doing two services, 9 and 11. Why are we doing two services? For more souls to get saved. For more people to come in the seats and hear the word of the Lord. I mean, we have an opportunity right in front of us and how tragic it would be if God is being patient to delay his judgment so that more sinners can turn and we're doing nothing to be a part of that. Like we're missing out on the whole plan of God. We're not celebrating who he is. We're just doing our own thing. That's tragic to me that some of us, even those of us who would call ourselves Christians, would completely miss the point. I think if we were to get honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that there were days, perhaps even days this week, that I missed the point of my life. And I acted like my life was somehow about me rather than the glory of a God who is so patient with people, he will delay his son's wedding so that they can be saved and join the party. I want to be a part of the patience of God. And go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, and there's going to be a, a key word that we're going to have to talk about. Because I, the, un, the foundational understanding of Scripture, the very idea behind the fear of God, is that the, the end of the matter is this, judgment is coming. It is appointed for a man to die once and then judgment comes. I know that's something that kind of rubs us the wrong way. We don't like to talk about that. But that, I mean, the patience of God, there is a bomb that's going to go off at the end of this long fuse. We have to understand that. And we don't know how long the fuse has left to burn. And there's a limited amount of time. And so this idea that people need to turn or they're going to burn, man, that idea has been so, like, just taken and looked to seem so stupid in the eyes of the world. But that's the idea that the Bible's clearly talking about here today. The day of the Lord's coming like a thief. The whole place is going to burn. So right now, God's being patient to delay it so that more people can turn from their sin and be saved. That's what the Bible's saying, okay? That's what it says. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think that people should be putting that on signs and yelling at people as they walk by. I don't think that's helped anybody. I don't even think really handing out literature helps. I think the best way to tell, care about people's souls and to tell them that judgment is coming and they need to turn, I think it's a handshake and a smile and maybe some free ice cream and the love of Jesus Christ. I think that's how people are going to listen. But when you get a chance to talk to people, you got to say what the good book says and you can't change the message just because people aren't going to like it. And the message is this, everybody in this room better turn or they're going to what, my friends? That's what the Bible says, see? That's what it says. And are you ashamed of that? Are you ashamed of the patience of God? Are you ashamed of who he is and at the end of his patience there will be wrath? Do you want to disown yourself from the God who loved you, saved you, made you, has given you every blessing that you've ever received? No, you declare who he is as he declares who he is. 
And he's got a very clear word that he wants us to use. And it's all over the Bible. And churches aren't talking about it that much. And it's this word right here. Here's what God wants. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Okay? But he wants all, every single soul on the planet, he wants them to reach, what's the word that it says right there? That's what he wants. He wants everybody to turn. That's his heart's desire. That's what brings him joy and pleasure. The angels rejoice when one sinner turns from their sin. Now, since we moved here to Huntington Beach, I've been doing everything I can to get to know as many people as I can, and I have come to the conclusion that we are living in the rehab capital of maybe the world, okay? I mean, I am meeting people all over the place. We got numbers of them even here. I mean, we got people who are involved in rehab, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, Garden Grove. I mean, there are just, when you start looking for it, there's rehab going on all around us all the time here. I have some serious things that people are trying to get out of their life that's led them down a bad path. And so it's like, how do we deal with the sin that is out of control in, in people's lives? The world's response, clearly, from just looking around what's going on in our culture, rehab is the world's response. And I'm all for whatever we can do to help people stop destroying themselves in sin. Hey, that's great. But I kind of... I have a thought that maybe rehab doesn't quite get the full measure of the problem. Rehab is short for rehabilitation. Can I read you the definition of rehabilitation? Restore to good health or, or useful life. Restore to good condition. To cause to be regarded again in a positive way. To reestablish esteem. To restore to the former rank privileges or rights thereof. So we're trying to rehabilitate. We're assuming that there was something good there before that we're trying to get back to. That's what the very definition of rehab means. Now, Christians have come along, and instead of using the word rehab sometimes as Christians, we use another word that starts with R-E. We use the word recovery. Have you heard about that before, right? A lot of times when we're trying to do rehab, but from a Christian perspective, because we're going to talk about God and we're going to use the Bible, we call it recovery. Well, what does recovery mean? Recovery means to restore something that was lost, right? I mean, like, like the person somehow lost their right way that they were going, and now we need to find it again. No, the person is lost. That's what the Bible says. There's nothing, a lost person is going to recover their lostness. A lost person is going to rehabilitate their sinful nature. We're assuming that people are good. That is our problem. People are not good. People need to repent. They need to declare that I don't just do bad things. I am a sinner. That's what they need to say. And they don't need to try to get back to a good place in their life. They need to admit that they have never been to a good place in their life before a holy God. That's what repentance is. It's an outright confession, not just of particular sins that you are doing, but the fact that you have been born into sin and it defines who you are. And without the mercy and grace of God, you will never change your life, no matter how hard you try. You might trade one bad problem for another, but you'll never give glory to God in the way that you're supposed to unless you do one word that he says right here that just also happens to start with an R-E, my friend, repentance, see. If we could just change the word rehab and the word recovery and we could insert the, play, the word repentance in every place that that is used, we would see a great revival in America. That's the word we need to get out there. 
getting back to something good. What good did we have if we ended up here? No, we need to declare ourselves sinners, see? And we need to turn away from our sin. We need to admit that I am going towards my own destruction. And unless God turns me around, I have no hope but him. When was the day that you admitted you weren't saved? When was the day that you admitted you couldn't do it? When was the day that you declared yourself before a holy God to be on the wrong side? See, that's the day of salvation for people. You can't get saved until you admit that you're not, until you ask God to save you. Go to Luke chapter 13 with me, and I just want you to see how Jesus Christ himself preached repentance and how he did it in such a jarring, such a strong way. Look at Luke chapter 13. Here's Jesus Christ, and people come to him because this terrible thing has happened in the nation of Israel. It says in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so we have people from the northern part of Israel, from the Sea of Galilee, who had come down to the temple to do some sacrifices. And apparently these people were zealots, maybe. They were, they were fanatics for, for Judaism, and they were planning some kind of uprising against Rome. And Pilate somehow knows these guys are going to rebel. They're going to go against the Roman order that's over the nation of Israel. And so just in a very kind of stick it to them kind of way, as they're going to make sacrifices in the temple of God, Pilate sends his guys in to kill these traitors from Pilate's perspective. And to the Jews, that's the worst thing. Blood, unclean blood getting mixed with the sacrifices and the scandal of this, the outrage of this. What a terrible way to die. That's what every Jew would have been thinking. What a dishonoring to God way to die. And here's what Jesus says to this national news. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? You think they were worse than the rest of you guys, than other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up another current event. Or those 18 on who the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, the Jews must have had some kind of concept here that if you die in some terrible way, that probably means you did something bad and God's going to judge you. And what Jesus says is, we've all done something bad. We are something bad. And God's going to judge all of us. And to be honest with you, whenever I read Luke 13 and I think about a tower falling over and killing people, I, I have to relate to, I think, the most, uh, the most, just the current event that affected me the most in my entire life. And I would imagine many of you, when, when the Twin Towers fell here in America, anybody remember that, 9-11? You remember that? Man, that hit us hard here in America. And, and I don't know where you were going to church or what, what, how old you were or what was going on in your life at that time, but I was going to this church, and 9-11 uh, happened, and then I went to church again the next Sunday, and there was hundreds of more people at this church. And there was newscasts going on all the time, and one of the questions people were asking is, why would God allow this to happen? And it was fascinating what was happening in America. I mean, people loved America after that. 
people had a question about God after that. I mean, things were really different for a while after that happened. And I, I read about it, and I watched shows about it, and I really became fascinated with all that had happened in 9-11. And you know the thing that stuck out to me that hit me in kind of this horrific fascination, because they didn't talk about it a lot, but it clearly happened, was the people who were trapped in the towers, who jumped out of the towers and fell to their death on the ground below. I don't know if you ever saw one of those videos of somebody falling. Some kind of gross, would you rather, where it's so hot and burning there in the, in the building that, that it makes sense to them to launch themselves out of the building, to fall off these two massive structures all the way down. And I read eyewitness accounts of what it was like when the bodies hit the ground. And I think about how horrible that was. And then I picture on the news, somebody going up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about the Twin Towers falling? What do you think about the people who perished in such a terrible way? And if Jesus could say to America, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We're all falling. We're all going down. Everyone is born perishing until you turn from your sin. So we know why today God hasn't judged the world. But let me ask you this. Why not today that you receive his gift of mercy? Why not today when you take him up on his patience, what are you waiting for to stop your sin? Do you want to perish, my friend? Or do you want to turn and be welcomed in to the wedding feast? Go to Romans chapter 2. And I got to read to you something that Paul says. In fact, in Second Peter, when he says the patience of our Lord is salvation... The reason any of us are saved is God is patient. He says, as Paul has written you. And I think he's got to be referring to uh, Paul, maybe his greatest work, the book of Romans chapter 2, where Paul describes the patience of our God. And he lays it out very clearly in front of every one of us. Here's your choices. Verse 4, the question is, do you presume, this is Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience, his macrothumia, his long suffering with your sin? Not knowing. Do you not know that the point of God's kindness is not to let you get away with it? It's not so you have more time to do more sin or live for yourself. No, the point of God's kindness is meant to lead you to what does it say there, my friends? Oh, it's meant to turn you around. God's given you a chance right now, today, my friend, so you can turn around to follow him. And if you have turned around, well, the, the point of today is that more people could turn. That's why he's being so patient. Or, here's the other option, verse 5, but because of your heart, your hard and impertinent heart, you are right now storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a choice. It's a choice that every person has that we're presenting here this morning. And I don't know why you came here today. If you came here because you're related to one of the cute kids who were getting dedicated. Or if somebody invited you. Or if you come here every single Sunday. But have you really turned from your sin? 
I'm not talking about stopping a few bad things and trying a few good things. I'm talking about coming to God and asking God to do what he wants to do. Saying, God, you are the only one who can turn my life around through the death of Jesus Christ for my sin and through the power of his glorious resurrection. I need to die to who I am, God. I need to rise again to a new life. Ask God to do what he wants. Let's get that down for point number three. We should ask God if it's his will that no one would perish, but that all should reach repentance, then let's all go ask God, do what you want to do. Turn people around from destruction. Save many people. Let us see us here at our church. And, and some of us maybe, today is your day. The 22nd day of March in the year of our Lord, 2015. How many more days does God need to wait for some people here in this room? Today is a perfectly good day. I think today would be a good day to get saved. Anybody with me on that? And if you have been saved, well, look at how God put up with you. Praise his holy name and let us spread. This isn't a bad message. No, this is a good message. God is patient, my friends. God is long-suffering. And the reason he gave you a chance today is to turn your life around. Ask God to save you. Or if he has saved you, praise him and ask him to save many more people. Pray with me. God, I thank you so much for this simple verse. God, impress it upon our hearts. Put it before our eyes. Let us memorize this. God, that you have been patient with each one of us. The only reason that anybody is sitting here today is you have been patient with us. You have not treated us as we deserve, but you have decided to withhold judgment and to give us grace and mercy. God, I pray that we would be so thankful, that our hearts would be so touched, that there's been a wedding that's been coming for thousands of years, and yet you delayed the wedding so that we would receive your invitation. God, we were the uncle and the aunt who were against Jesus Christ and his church being united. And God, we thank you that you have now brought us into the feast that we will enjoy with you. And God, we pray that many more people will be turned. God, we want to be with you. We ask that Jesus would come, but at the same time, our hearts break for those who aren't ready yet. We ask that you will use today to make more people ready. God, we know that Satan is out deceiving. We know that the world is enticing. We know that people's flesh are leading them away. But God, you are stronger. That's what we believe here. And we proclaim that the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive sin and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers every person here a new life and all they have to do is ask you, declare their life of sin for what it is and ask for a new life in Jesus Christ and God, you will give it to them, God. Please do what you want to do. Do what you want to do, God. Save many people, we pray in Jesus' name.